Thank you, worship team. Beautiful, sweet worship this morning. You may be seated. Now, every week, it seems, I'm asking you to pray for my microphone, and I do ask for it again this morning. I've got a backup here with me just in case, but um, it, it appears the trap door on the battery compartment is not fully seating as it should be, and so it, the batteries are kind of popping in and out. So hopefully it works, but if not, it's because you're not praying hard. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. We'll get through this. I, like I said, I have, a, I have a backup just in case, but uh, at any rate, uh, turn with me. We're continuing our way through the uh, book of Romans. We're continuing our way uh, walking through Paul's grand treatise on the gospel, and we find ourselves this morning in Romans chapter 5. We're going to be looking at today at verses 15 to 17, but in addition to that, I'd like for you to tear off a strip of your bulletin and bookmark a couple of other passages that we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, we're also going to be looking in John, the gospel of John chapter 18, and we're also going to be in Luke chapter 13, Luke 13 and 18, John 18. Oh, see, it's already beginning. So uh, go ahead and make your way there. Uh, we, uh, we've been working our way through Romans chapter 5, but for, I, I see a number of guests and visitors in the room this morning, and I just want to welcome you here. We are so grateful and honored that you would choose to worship the Lord with us this morning, and uh, it's our privilege and our delight to have you here this morning to share the Word of God with you. Um, just to help, for those of you who are first-time visitors, guests, just to help you understand, we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And the reason for that is because the Holy Spirit inspired men of old to write Scripture in such a way that every word on the page is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. It's not the Word of an ordinary man. It is Holy Scripture. In the same way that you and I would not, upon receiving a letter from a loved one, just hopscotch around in that letter looking for things we liked, we would read it start to finish. Normally, that's how normal correspondence ought to work. In that same way, we believe that not only did the Holy Spirit inspire every verse in this book, but He also inspired the way that these verses are strung together as a whole letter to the, the church in Rome. And so, for those of you that are joining us, you're jumping into the middle of an argument, and uh, you're jumping in the middle of an, uh, an in-depth logical discussion on the nature of of man and the nature of salvation. And so you might not understand all the little pieces that are uh, at work here. So I just, just to bring you up to speed briefly, if you look at chapter 5, verse 11, and this itself is at the end of a complex argument that Paul has put together. But in verse 11, he says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying we can worship, we can rejoice because of what Christ has done. And he says, it's in Christ through whom, referring to Christ, we have now received reconciliation. Everything that follows from verses 12 to the end of the chapter, chapter 5 all the way down to verse 21, he's, he's, he's enumerating, he's expounding upon how it is we're able to rejoice and worship and praise God as a result of the reconciliation that we have through Christ. Last week, we looked at the nature that we inherit from Adam, and this morning, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 15 to 17, which is contrasting the nature that we received from Adam versus the nature that we are given as a gift because of Christ. And then what are the consequences of the Adamic nature that we inherited upon birth versus the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and grace that we are given from Christ upon our believing and hoping in Jesus. That's what we're looking at. We're, we're comparing and contrasting those two things this morning. And really, to understand what the ultimate effect of all of these things is, we're going to be jumping eventually to John and Luke. So, with all that said, what I'd like to do, just kind of, that, that was just a quick refresher. What I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to read to you Romans chapter 5, verses 15 to 17. And then, as it is our custom here at First Baptist Church, just to take a moment, we cannot this passage apart from the Holy Spirit helping us. So let's just take a moment and ask God to help us to understand the passage, and then we'll get to work. So if you would look with me, Romans chapter 5, I'm just going to remind us of verses 15 to 17. It says, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But 
the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. There is the two different natures, there is the immediate effect, and then there is the ultimate effect where we're driving at this morning. Those who have trusted in Jesus Christ will one day be restored to a position of dominion and authority over this earth. Amen? Good news? If you're not satisfied with your current politicians, then that should sound really good to you, right? At any rate, let's pray. Let's ask God to help us. Father in heaven, as we look at this text this morning, it is good news on so many levels. It is the ultimate news. It is news of restoration. It is news of forgiveness. It is news of reconciliation between us and you, Heavenly Father, the greatest prize of all. Lord, as we exposit this text this morning, I pray, Father, that we, although we very much so do look forward to reigning in life with you, help us to remember that we do it together with you and that you are our prize. Help us to treasure you, Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Going back to the 10th century B.C., if you were to walk among his gardens, you would encounter trees transplanted from distant forests. You would observe in this immaculate landscape Fish pools fed by artificial streams, their waters being perpetually stirred and ruffled as golden fish dart from water cave to water cave. In the royal gardens, you encounter the most exotic flowers blooming and spangling their rainbow colors everywhere. And in the distance, you would see deer and other exotic wildlife grazing and stalking across the park. Peacocks brought back from India would meander down the sidewalks. If you closed your eyes and you listened carefully in the distance, you would hear the neighing of 4,000 of the world's finest horses in the royal stables. And, of course, just a little bit further down the road from them would be 1,400 of the most exquisitely crafted chariots ever devised, just waiting to be brought out on parade for some visiting foreign dignitary. His mansion is no less impressive. If you've ever seen Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous or Cribs on MTV and looked at these houses of these celebrities, they would all be made to look like paupers' cottages when compared to this king's palace. In the royal cellar are flasks of the world's finest wines just waiting to be uncorked at his weekly parties. His financial portfolio is no less impressive. You think of the world's billionaires today. He was the world's very first billionaire. In gold alone, he had a bank account of approximately $6 billion. In silver, $100 billion, $290 million in today's currency. He was a shipping tycoon. His vast navies of merchant ships traversing the oceans of the world, bringing back countless treasures to adorn his palace walls. He was also a master builder, employing 3,300 master masons, 8,000 artisan craftsmen, 77,000 laborers in all to build many, many different projects across the country, but the greatest of which, one of the wonders of the ancient world, the temple he is a true renaissance man. He is the author and the composer, a musician, of over 1,005 songs that you can hear on the hit parade, on the AT Top 40, on any given day of the week. 
Not only is he a musician, he is a philosopher, the author of more than 3,000 proverbs, little nuggets of wisdom that can guide and direct the life. And on top of all of this, he is a scientist, writing extensively various books on various scientific topics, including zoology, ichthyology, which is the study of fish, or ornithology, the study of birds. But his favorite topic of all, the one that he talks about most extensively, is botany. 700 of the world's most beautiful women call him husband. 300 more serve as his concubine. All 1,000 ready to satisfy his every whim and wish. He is, you might say, the world's most interesting man. He dines at only the finest restaurants. He shops at only the most luxurious bazaars. He is followed around by more paparazzi than Elvis, Princess Diana, or Michael Jackson combined. He is a true celebrity amongst his people. He is Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Donald Trump, and Hugh Hefner all rolled in to one man. His father, I beg your pardon, his mother, the ravishing and beautiful Bathsheba. His father, the dauntless and intrepid warrior king of Israel, the slayer of giants, the great and mighty King David. What is his name, you wonder? Solomon. The world's richest man, the world's wisest man, the world's most accomplished man. And at the end of his life, he writes his final New York Times bestseller, And as we all wonder how he will begin this amazing treatise on all that he has learned and all that he has seen and all that he has accomplished over the course of his lifetime, do you know what opening words he uses to grab our attention in order to impart to us what he has truly gleaned from all of it? The words begin this way, Havel, Havalim, Havel, Havalim, Hakol. Havel, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all, he says, all of it is vanity. What did he just say? Did you hear him? Did you hear him say what I think I heard him say? How can he say that? The most successful businessman, the most accomplished scientist, the greatest philosopher, how after all this, I mean, this is a man upon whom the world has exhausted itself, and he has squeezed every last drop of pleasure and joy and success and accomplishment and purpose and worth out of all that this world has to offer. And at the end of all of it, he says, it's all vanity. What does that mean, I wonder? You know, my mom, and I, I saw this as a young man, would oftentimes sit in front of a piece of furniture with a mirror on it doing her makeup, and she would refer to that as her vanity. And of course, in time, I came to realize that the word vanity wasn't referencing so much a piece of furniture as it was the attempt to make one's face look beautiful. And so whether we're talking about uh, uh, the way a person's face looks or whether we're talking about the, the furniture that one uses in order to improve one's physical appearance, is that what Solomon is really driving at? This word Havel is used some 38 times all across the book of Ecclesiastes, his last bestseller, and it doesn't necessarily refer to beauty, although it does touch on beauty, but no, this word Havel, used 38 different times, is used by Solomon to describe the purpose and the meaning of life, and this word Havel, at its root, at its core, it has the meaning of vapor or mist, breath smoke even. Do you know what the word Havel really means? If you've ever seen a child dipping one of those little rings in a, in a thing of soap and blowing and the soap bubble goes out across the wind, Havel would be a word used to describe what is left after that bubble pops. It's nothingness. It's emptiness. It's mist. It's vapor. At the end of his life, Solomon, after having seen it all, having done it all, 
writes as his final words of wisdom to you and me under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that all of life under the sun is havel, it is vanity. And he means this word in two significant ways. First, he's talking about futility. The starkest way in which Solomon uses this word is to suggest that there is nothing that is worthwhile because everybody dies. Everybody dies. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're Mother Teresa or the infamous Vancouver serial killer Robert Picton. It doesn't matter whether you're a minister of the gospel. It doesn't matter whether you are a horrific criminal. It does not matter. You will die. We are all coming to an inescapable and inevitable end. You will die. And the people who bury you, after they put their shovels down, they will go on and they will live their lives. And then they also will die. And the people who bury them, they also will die. And a number of years ago, a study was conducted regarding the food, the number one most consumed food at funerals. And do you know what that study found? People are most likely at your funeral to eat potato salad. You will die. They will bury you. And then for a short while at a at a a reception afterwards, they will speak of you as they eat their potato salad. But then after a short period of time, they will be done with the potato salad. And they will be done talking about you. Sure, you'll be recounted from time to time as the years go on. They might say at that next Christmas, you know what, I really wish so-and-so were here. I am sad that he's gone. But as the Christmases extend on and as the decades arrive, you will no longer be spoken of. Your end is to be completely and totally forgotten. Havel, Solomon says. The second way that he uses this word is to talk about even what you might accomplish during the course of your life. He uses the word Havel to describe how random it all is. I'm sure as I'm speaking to individuals who are 40, 50, 60 years of age, you started your life off in your 20s or your late teens with great potential and great hopes and dreams for the future. And as the years wended their way on, you found at some point coming to what has often been described today as a midlife crisis, where all that you'd hoped to achieve, you got some of it done, some things you had success, but then just a short period of time later, those accomplishments that you had were undone, and you realize now at your mid-50s and your midlife that really your life has been consumed by random and unpredictable moments of chance. Chaos has followed you everywhere you go, and there is no fixed formula by which you will be capable of achieving anything of lasting significance. Not only are you going to die, and not only are you going to be forgotten about, but even those things which you had hoped to achieve will not last. One day you're healthy, and the next day you've got cancer, and then you're gone. One day you're alive, and the next day you are dead. Solomon says at the end of it all, it's a vanity. And that is the word we need to have in our mind this morning, because if Solomon could have met the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul would have said something like this to Solomon. You know what? Solomon, you're right. Under the sun, in Adam, all that you might hope to accomplish is a futility, a striving after the wind. It is Havel. It is a vanity. All in Adam. But Paul would say, I've got good news. And church, this morning, I've got good news for you. If you're in Adam, there's no hope. But God in his grace has given us a new man. We have been given the gift of Jesus Christ. And as we can say in Adam, no matter how successful we are, no matter how, we, how much we accomplish, it is all a striving after the wind. It is all a soap bubble that has already popped. In Christ, 
we can say that with Christ, the saints of the Most High will one day reign in life. Look with me. We're in Romans chapter 5, and Paul begins his rebuttal of Solomon here, talking about the free gift and the difference that it is, what we have in Christ versus Adam. And and I want to just give you a few bulletins, uh, a few headings around which you can kind of organize your thoughts. Verse 15 is talking about the radically different nature of the two actions, the action of Adam contrasted with the action of Christ. The first verse, verse 15, deals with the nature, the difference, the, the fundamental different essence of these two actions. The second verse, which is verse 16, deals with the immediate effects of those two actions upon mankind. How are we immediately changed as a result of these two individuals' actions? And then the last verse, verse 17, deals with the ultimate, the enduring, and the lasting effect of these two actions. So we pick it up in verse 15. If you look with me, Paul says there in in Romans chapter 5, verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by the the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. What Paul is saying there is we know it by the reality of death. There is sin in the world. You are going to die, and that death impacts you. We could just as easily say, you know what? We're going to die, and that is an event that is going to happen at some point in our life. It is a singular event we will perish and be gone from this earth. And even in saying that, we must still contend with the deeper significance of what that means. All too often, people say, I'm just going to go out and live my life to the fullest because at some point, I'm going to die. Young people today even have an acronym that they use to describe it. YOLO, you only live once. And they use this as an encouragement or perhaps a justification for doing incredibly insane things. Yo, let's go jump off a building and see if we survive because YOLO, you only live once. And all the wise individuals in the room hear that and say, you only live once. And man, is your life going to be really short. (laughs) We sometimes try to dismiss the futility of it all by trying to just focus on the immediate present. However, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we're going to reckon with this question that Solomon spent his whole life reckoning with, what is the meaning of any of it? Though we only die once, what Paul is touching on here and what he is acknowledging is that that death colors and shapes and influences everything. We have been born with a nature that stands under God's wrath, and the reality is is that we are all under the curse. We must die for our sins, and he makes that clear. But that death then colors, influences, and corrupts every action that we might pursue living on this earth. The author of Hebrews makes a really profound statement. I don't want you to flip there. Just listen. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15, speaking of Jesus, it says that Jesus came to uh, deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. And so as we've been working our way through Romans chapter 5, we understand that we have a nature that inclines us and drives us towards sin, but we also inherit a corrupt world in which the reality of the curse is everywhere to be seen. We all know, whether we're willing to acknowledge it or not, that we're going to die. And that knowledge of a quickly approaching death reminds us every day that we are all built with a best used before expiration date. We all, in our own way, are exclaiming YOLO to ourselves. You say, not me, Pastor Josh. Here's a question that you can use to diagnose whether or not you're guilty of this mentality. If you have what has, in recent years, been referred to as a bucket list, then you might be living under this Adamic mentality. And that reality that you're going to die drives you to succeed in some way of achieving either meaning or worth, and none of that can be had apart from Christ. A part of the circumstances of your world, combined with your sin nature, drives you to pursuing things that are inherently corrupt. And that's what 
Paul touches on in verse 15. In verse 15, he says, the free gift, though, isn't like the trespass. He says, for if many died and lived in a deadly world, a world that was marked by death, through the one man's trespass, through Adam, what he did for us and what he has done in us all across the centuries, then he says, much more, much more so. In other words, far above and beyond what Adam has done, Christ has done something even greater. So he says, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. What Paul is doing here in verses 15, 16, and 17 is he's using a classical A-B syllogistic argument. This is what is commonly referred to in logic. You know, this is just a proof. And he's saying, if you are aware of and if you acknowledge the effects of Adam and what he has done, if there is a certainty or if there is a finality to what Adam has given you, then how much more so, how much more certain is the finality and the guarantee of what Christ has given to you? If what Adam did as an ordinary man brought about all of our lives coming to an end and dying, and then marking our lives by Havel, by vanity, such that we live lives that inevitably come to this midlife moment where we're like, oh, what is the meaning of it all? I don't know what I'm accomplishing with any of my life. If that is what Adam has done, Paul is saying, and what Christ has given you is so much more than that. If you know Adam's work in your life because you have aged, and you've experienced health problems, and you've seen loved ones die, and you know your life is coming to an end. If you have that certainty regarding the effect of Adam on you, Paul is saying you can have that same certainty regarding what Jesus Christ is doing for you. That is verse 15, the nature of what Adam has done versus the nature of what Christ has done. And if I could summarize it in a single sentence, it would be this. Adam has ended your life. It's already ticking away. But Christ has eternally extended your life. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I have come that they might have life. Not that they will go to heaven someday. Now, don't misunderstand me. If you believe in Jesus, there is a moment coming in which you will die, and the immediate moment following that death, you will be in heaven. But that's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, I have come that they may have life. And he says in John chapter 10, verse 10, that they may have life abundantly. God's purpose in sending his son was that you would live now and that you would live forever. And when you think about what Adam has done, there's really no comparison. With Adam, your life is marked to futility and corruption and death. It's over. But in Jesus, this is just the beginning. Church, I know it's snowing outside, and some of us are still groggy because we got an extra hour of sleep last night. Strange how that works. But say amen. With Adam, your life is over. But with Christ, this is just the beginning. And all God's people said, amen. 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 The nature of what these two individuals have done is radically different and opposite. But what is the immediate effect? What is it that we inherit immediately upon receiving Christ? And that's what Paul says next. 
before, all Solomon could talk about is the fact that your life is corrupt and that you're going to die and that we all stand accountable to our maker. He brings the book of Ecclesiastes to this fearful and dreadful conclusion. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. It ends on a depressing note. We stand under judgment. That's the reality of all this world, Solomon says. It doesn't matter how much money you accumulate. It doesn't matter how much success you have in your career. You're condemned. You stand guilty because you have sinned. And Paul steps and he says, that's what you had from the 10th century looking forward, the 10th century BC looking forward. But here's what we have now because of Jesus. He says in verse 16, the free gift isn't like the trespass, talking again about Adam. He says the free gift is not like the result of the one man's trespass. And what was that result? He talks about death in the previous verse. He says the free gift is not like the result of that one's man's trespass. For if, he says, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. These are legal terms. You're in a court of law. You're in the docket standing before the judge. And the judge here is God the Father Almighty. And as a result of what Adam has done, all of us, you, me, everyone, all of us, we stand before the judge of heaven and earth and we are guilty. And he takes great pains to tell us before we arrive at that appointed court date so that we would know we are guilty because he wants us to understand the necessity of our pardon and our forgiveness. He's using legal terminology here. And in verse 16, it says, the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment that follows one trespass brought condemnation. It brought a guilty sentence and an eternal punishment. And he goes on, but here is how the free gift is so much sweeter. He says, the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. You were born in sin, and then you spent your whole life ratifying what Adam gave you. You were born into sin, and though we all might like to be tempted and say, well, it's not my fault. I was born this way. I'm, I'm trapped in these circumstances because of Adam. What Paul has just said in verse 12 is no man can say that because we all sinned. And as James chapter 1 makes clear, we've all been lured and enticed by our own desires. So you cannot point the finger at Adam. You cannot blame Adam the reality is we are all the atom of our own soul. We all sin. We all have desires that are wrong. We are all prone to temptation, and we are all under the condemnation and the judgment of God. But here's how what Jesus has done is so much better than what Adam has done. If one sin served to condemn the billions upon billions of humanity to eternal punishment after we've all sinned innumerable, innumerable times across our life, the one action of Christ dying on the cross covers over Adam's sin and the untold, uncountable sins of all of humanity from the moment of Adam's rebellion in the garden to when you and I woke up irritable and in our anger said harsh words and sinned this very morning. And it doesn't stop there. What this verse is saying is that what Christ has done on the cross for you suffices to cover all of your sins for your whole life. If one action of Adam condemns all of humanity, Jesus is so much sweeter and so much better because his one action on the cross atones for all the sins that have been sinned amongst humanity. The immediate effect then of the action of Christ is that in a legal sense, the demands of the law have been satisfied. You are no longer declared guilty. You are no longer under the condemnation of your sins because of Jesus dying on the cross for you if you would receive him as your Savior and your Lord, you are declared righteous in God's eyes. The law is satisfied. Justice has been served 
but grace is freely given to you and me. And that brings us to the last verse, verse 17. The nature of these two actions is radically different. The immediate effect of these two actions is polar opposite. But what is the ultimate effect of these two actions? Paul says here in verse 17, If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more, and as Paul has been using this uh, compare and contrast formula, what you're expecting Paul to say as the contrast to the reign of death is that life would reign. But that's not what he says. Look closely. He says, if death reigned, in verse 17, says the free gift of righteousness, uh, beg your pardon, it says, if death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Where you would expect him to say life reigns, the ultimate effect of what Jesus does on the cross for you and me is that you and I who have trusted in Jesus we will reign in life. Now, what does that mean? And all the various theologians with their differing eschatologies immediately start to argue. Here's what I am persuaded it means. Adam had a negative effect on the history of this world. We have walked on these streets. We have walked on this turf under the dominion of sin. And as a result, our history has been marked by war and violence and bloodshed. Our history has been marked by the stronger taking advantage of the weaker. And what I think this passage is saying is that the history of this world, the final chapter, will not be the dominion of sin reigning on this dirt. It will be the reign of Christ as the final chapter of this world before a new heavens and a new earth come. And I also am persuaded and utterly convinced that there will be a resurrection of the righteous at the start of this final chapter. When Paul says here that the end result of what Jesus has done for us is that those who have received that grace will reign in life. I am persuaded that he does not mean some sort of spiritual reign. I am persuaded that he is not referring to some sort of reign up in heaven. I am persuaded that he is talking about a final chapter of human history on this earth whereby we will reign with Christ. It's not the only time he's used this kind of language. And I don't want you to flip there. I just want you to listen. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul has been writing to the church at Corinth and admonishing them for all kinds of sins. If it could have gone wrong in a church, it did go wrong in the church of Corinth. We are so grateful for this group of biblically illiterate misfits and, and the struggles that they had because Paul, in writing to correct them, gives us so much rich encouragement and instruction for our own church, which struggles in so much sin. But one of the things that they did is they would not listen to the instruction of various teachers, and they liked to play favorites in terms of the teachers that they picked and chose for themselves. They would not come together as a church to hear this instruction of Scripture. Rather, they preferred to bicker over who their favorite leader was. They were all very content and self-sufficient. And it is this contentedness and this, this ego that Paul is writing to address, and he accuses them as though they are acting as if they are already reigning on this earth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 8, he says, Already you have all you want? You're satisfied? You think there's nothing further? You think there's nothing more? Already you have become rich? Without us, Paul referencing himself and his fellow workers in the ministry of the gospel, he says, without us, you have become king." 
And he's saying all of this sarcastically because it is clear that they are not the kings that God intends for them to be, but they think themselves quite happy and self-sufficient. He makes this really powerful, sarcastic comment in which he says, and would that you did reign so that we might be sharing the rule with you. Paul's rebuke of them is, you act like you've already arrived. He says, I wish that you had arrived. I wish that you were reigning. I wish that you were exercising the dominion of Christ over this earth, because that would mean I would be there with you doing it too. But clearly, I am not. Paul's purpose in that rebuke is to bring them back to a healthy humility in which they can receive the word of God. But it's interesting in the nature and the way in which he structures that rebuke because it assumes that there is a truth that we will one day reign and rule over this earth. Church, the ultimate effect of what Christ has purchased for you on the cross is that we would be restored as image bearers reflecting the image of God over his whole creation. Wow, I'm ready for that. We look at our most recent civic election, and I'm sure all of you voted for different people, and all of you got some of the candidates that you wanted, and all of you probably had some, saw some people elected to city council whom you would have rather not been elected to city council. It's kind of a hodgepodge bag of mixed individuals. They don't all agree with each other. And as we look at all of this, we think to ourselves, what kind of an administration will we see in our city this next year? Well, it'll be a lot of conflict, I'm sure. Already we know several of them don't like each other and probably won't get along too well. And that's also the nature of politics as a whole. If you were to look at the provincial uh, MLAs or whether you were to look at the federal MPs, invariably they all are interested in advancing their own political career, which invariably means that if they would succeed, they must minimize, diminish, attack the achievements of their political opponents. Fascinating how that works. And so as each politician, all the way up to the office of the prime minister himself, is looking to further his legacy, looking to further his accomplishments, looking really to make the most out of this popped soap bubble that we are left with, who are all the victims? Who are all the ones taken advantage of? Why? If you don't know, then you're just not paying attention. That would be you and me. You know who I grieve for the most? I grieve for those individuals who are trapped in addiction, who have bought into the lie and have participated in their own self-deception with regards to injecting these life-ending substances, heroin, cocaine, and of course, the toxicity of the drug now present, fentanyl. And the world in all of its wisdom says, do you know how we can best help these people? We need to be able to give them safe drug paraphernalia to use in order for them to further their self-destruction in a safe way. Not even realizing how oxymoronic that statement is. Jesus wants to heal. And the first step to the path of healing is to completely stop the harm. Not to compromise with it, not to negotiate with it not to allow for it, but to stop it. I know that for many who are on the streets, they're guilty of many things, and many of them find themselves in this situation as a result of their own horrific choices. I'm not here to quibble or argue over that point, simply to say that if we would extend grace to them, the current policies of our government do not extend any grace. And I think to myself, Lord, wouldn't it be great if I were on city council and I could enact some sort of a policy that would bring this harm to an end and give these guys a fighting chance? And do you know what the Lord says in those moments? I'm sure you've all been there. 
I'm sure you all have wished at one point in time, whenever you come up against some ridiculous government bureaucratic red tape or some ridiculous policy that was clearly unjust and short-sighted, I'm sure you've all wished at some point in time, man, wouldn't it be great if I was the Prime Minister of Canada? And American boys think to themselves, wouldn't it be great if I was the President of the United States? And do you know what Jesus says in response to all of that? One day you will reign. Look at the verb tense here. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. Where it says much more will those... The verb tense there is future indicative. If death has exerted an authority over your life, then the gospel in Jesus Christ promises that there is a day coming, not yet here, but a day coming in which in the same way death has exercised authority and control over your life because of what Jesus has done for you. You in life will exercise authority and dominion over all that death has touched. That's what the passage is saying. If death has negatively influenced this world, the immediate effect of Christ is to justify you and to declare you righteous before God, and the ultimate enduring effect is that you will one day be restored to a place of rightful dominion. If you've ever wished you were, at some point, the prime minister or the president, well, the throne belongs to Christ. But the promise has been given, and it stands just as sure as the sun rose this morning that one day you will reign over this earth. You say, that sounds great, pastor. I'm ready for it. No, I I don't think that you are. Okay. Wasn't expecting that. What do I have to do to get ready? I'm so glad you asked. I am so glad you asked. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 18. We have a kingdom. It is coming. We will reign over it. But first, let's get our bearings, shall we? Jesus at the end of his ministry, comes to stand before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate is going to sentence him to death. And Jesus begins to explain what this kingdom looks like, what it is and what it isn't. Pontius Pilate says, hey, all these Jewish fellows out here, they're all accusing you of insurrection and sedition. They're saying that you're making yourself out to be a king, that somehow you're going to overthrow Caesar. What do you say to that? And listen closely to what Jesus says. Jesus answered, he doesn't say, what kingdom? What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about, kingdom. These guys are crazy. Nope, it's not what he says. He acknowledges the presence of the kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world, meaning his authority and his power is not politically derived. It does not come from the consent of the masses. His authority, his dominion, his reign comes from beyond this world. That's what he's saying, first off. And in order to illustrate that, he says, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. If this were an earthly established kingdom that was built upon the political consent of the masses, we'd be at blows with one another right now. He is saying, my rule and my authority does not derive from the masses. It is from beyond this world. It is not grounded in the people here. It is grounded in the throne of God. That's the first thing he says. Say, what does this kingdom look like? Pilate asks him, so then you are a king? You do have authority? You do have dominion? Jesus answers, you say that I'm a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Notice this phrase, to bear witness to the truth. He has been preaching the kingdom so long and so clearly 
There has been no confusion of his words. There's been no misunderstanding of what he's saying. That eventually he has come to the attention of the authorities. The Jewish establishment, the religious establishment is infuriated by him. They all want him dead. In other words, he's been speaking the truth and he's gotten into trouble with it. But what he proudly and boldly proclaims is that what he has to say is the truth of the gospel, which is that you must repent of your sins. You must turn away because the kingdom is at hand. And indeed, the kingdom has arrived. The king is Jesus. That means whatever he says you have to do with your life, you have to do it. It's not a suggestion. He is your king, and his authority is not established here in the church. We all like Jesus, and so he can, he can have a say here at First Baptist Church. Whether we agreed with him or not, whether we submitted to his word or not, Jesus is Lord, and he is going to reign, which is to say he doesn't need a political vote at a minimum. Now, his kingdom begins in this way. He will proclaim the truth. Which means if we are the citizens of his kingdom, are we therefore called to proclaim the truth? Indeed, we are. Just as he did. We're called to proclaim that Jesus is king that his word is the authority and it is the counsel and the wisdom of God and it is by his word that we can, only by his word, that we can even possibly hope to make any of this mess correct and bring about some sort of flourishing for our society, all with the humble recognition that the ultimate blessing and the ultimate healing will never come until Jesus returns. You know, we're down here in the downtown of Kamloops. City Council is like five blocks that way. A number of weeks ago, or a number of months ago, this church voted not to leave this location in terms of expanding our facilities because we were convinced that God had us here for a reason. Jesus proclaimed the truth to everyone including the authorities. We've said we're here for a reason. Well, the authorities are right over there. If reigning with Christ looks like bearing witness to the truth, then I wonder, why are we not over there at the city council meetings? Why are we sitting here silent? Why are we not standing up to represent our king? Now listen to me, you work, you got a nine to five job. Some of you, you're laborers, you work building, carpentry, construction. Your job is to provide homes and to engage in landscaping. And you have to do these things in order to provide for your family. And so one of the ways that you begin to exercise the reign of Christ in your life is to go to your job and do your nine to five. Myself, I was persuaded that I needed to take a more active role because I see our city crumbling. I see our province falling to pieces, and I know that I have not been faithful in proclaiming the gospel. And so I said, what I'm going to do this year is I'm going to go and I'm going to make it my point to sit in on the city council meetings, and whenever they're speaking of moral issues, to stand up when they call for people from the peanut gallery to comment on it, which they do from time to time, I would stand up and I would graciously and lovingly speak biblical truth to what they were doing and encourage them to consider an alternative course of action. Then I was scheduled to teach systematic theology on Tuesday afternoons, right when that city council meeting happens every two weeks. And so I recognize God has my place somewhere else to teach scripture. If you're a mom, you're raising kids. If you're a dad, you're working nine to five. And I was praying, and I was like, Lord, who among us could go and take turns sitting on the city council meetings? And I'm looking at you, seniors. I'm not joking. I understand you can't make it out to prayer meetings because it gets dark at night and the roads are slippery. Your responses and your reflexes are diminished as a result of age. I appreciate all of that. Who among us has lived life the longest and has learned to speak and to season his speech with the most grace? I'm persuaded it's the seniors. 
Who among us has seen the most that has happened on this earth and has all too clear of an understanding of just how quickly things can shift and go sideways? I am persuaded that it is the seniors. Well then, who best among us to go and in a spirit of encouragement to challenge and speak to the issues of city council? It has to be the seniors. And so my challenge this morning for you seniors and for any member of First Baptist Church, why do we not speak to city council? We'll tell everyone about Jesus, our neighbors, our loved ones. But why are we afraid to stand up and speak to those who make the biggest decisions that impact our community? You say, well, I'll tell you why, Pastor Josh. Because they will crucify us. Yes, they will. Second passage that I want you to turn to. I'm not denying that. Luke chapter 13. Jesus is preaching on the kingdom of heaven. And in verses 28 to 33, preaching on the kingdom of heaven in Luke 13, it says, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west, from north and south, and they will recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. And at that very hour... Some Pharisees came and they said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Run away. The politician has heard that in that coming kingdom, he may not be the preeminent one. Get away from here, for the, the leader of our country has heard you preaching on this kingdom, and he has recognized that he himself will not have the preeminent position of authority. He will not sit in that chair at the head of that table, and he's coming for you. Jesus, run! And look at what Jesus says. Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and I perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I will finish my course. I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. I am not in any way trying to deny to you or diminish or downplay the social repercussions of standing up for biblical truth. Can it get you killed? No, Jesus promises at a minimum it's going to hurt. And yeah, it can, it can result in something like death. But Jesus' response was that there was something more delightful than living a long life. And his delight was in this, proclaiming the kingdom of God. The solution to all of our problems has been the good news of Jesus Christ. The counsel which can mitigate all of the disasters that we experience day in and day out comes from the truth of Scripture. And if we are truly transformed with Jesus as our treasure and a love for our fellow man, then we must speak to these issues. Beautiful First Baptist Church, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, then one day you will be trading seats with those guys at the table. In order to prepare for that moment, you have to grow in wisdom, you have to grow in your knowledge of Scripture. And you're going to have to grow in faith. And the means by which God works out edification and sanctification in our life is by calling us to do those things now, not later. You look at city council, you look at our province, uh, our provincial authorities, you look at our federal authorities. They will hate what you have to say. And yes, there is a day coming in which speaking the truth may land you in prison or worse. But even if they should kill you, the good news of Jesus Christ is this. 
that as they lead you from their chambers, you can look back at them and say this. I'll be right back. (laughs) That's the truth of God's word. As they lead you away, you can smile. And with full faith and confidence in the blood of Christ, you can say, I'll be right back. You know, if Solomon were here, dressed in all of his robes of Tyrian purple, with all of his glitz and his glamour, if Solomon were here, he would say, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. But Paul comes and he says, we have something greater than the law. We have Jesus Christ. And if Solomon were here, I would say to Solomon, look at you in all your splendor and all your festive garments and attire. Look out at all these wonderful people here who've believed in Jesus. Solomon, you're a chump compared to these people. For all your nice clothing and for all your pomp and circumstance and all your palaces and all your wealth and all your splendor, these people are clothed in the blood of the Almighty. Church, Adam cursed you. Jesus has saved you to reign with him in life. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we just thank you for your word, and we thank you for what you say to us. And Lord, as we look forward to that appointed day in which we will have the opportunity to help and to bring blessing and to administer justice and to do what you would desire to see happen on this earth, that your will would be done here just as it is in heaven. Lord, let us not get ahead of ourselves, but let us be faithful to proclaiming the day of forgiveness, and the day of reconciliation. Lord, help us to be faithful to proclaim the year of salvation. Help us to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Do that work in our hearts, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.